asking, coming before the Lord and asking for his help. Our Father in heaven, we give you thanks that there is none like you. That with you there is no variation or shadow due to change. You are always good, loving, always just and wise. You're the kind of father that when your children ask for bread, you will not give a stone. Or when your children ask for fish, you don't hand us a serpent. You are the perfect heavenly father and you always know best. And so we bring our requests to you in faith, trusting in your perfect providence. We pray for those who are new to this church, whether a new member or visiting for the first time or visiting for a long time. And we ask that you would cause our church to be a place of hospitality and warmth. We pray for seasoned members to open their homes and share their friendships. Even more, we pray for depth in our conversations, that it would go beyond work or hobbies or interests. Cause this local body here at Redeemer to be a place where biblical truth is spoken to one another and theological conversations take place and burdens are shared and accountability is deep and prayers are common for one another and your gospel proclaimed. Lord, we bring before you this morning Chinese Grace Bible Church in Sacramento. We're so thankful for the ministry of Pastor Tranway there over these past couple years and ask that you would give him wisdom as he continues to navigate and minister in this immigrant church context, cause him to preach faithful expository sermons, to rightly divide the word of truth, and we ask that you would furnish him with every good work. We look forward to having him with us this summer for our church retreat. We pray too for the ministry of the Master Seminary in Southern California. We pray that it would be a place where poverty of spirit and lowliness and meekness be manifested through the administration and faculty and student body. We ask that there would be a strong and evident conviction among those trained for the pastorate that the deep and constant study of scripture is the best way to become wise in counseling others with their weaknesses. And we do not cease to pray for the nation of Yemen. We don't only think of things here in the Bay Area or California or even our nation. We, we want to pray for the world. We And so we turn our attention to Yemen. We pray for the recent truce to provide the break the country needs for this forever conflict that they seem to be in. We pray for that staggering death toll of over 375,000 people who have died. God, bring peace in this nation between warring tribes and governments. And we ask that Yemenis would find life in Christ through the radio, through Bible distribution, through careful witness. Reveal the one who shed his blood 
Reveal Christ so that in him the most ardent enemies might be reconciled to you and to each other. And now, Lord, as we come to your word, send us the help of the Holy Spirit to enlighten and illumine our understanding, to grant faith to those who do not yet know Christ, to strengthen those who already know you, and yet who, because they find themselves in trial or endure suffering, are struggling to cling on. Strengthen them by your word. Restore black backsliders, bind up the brokenhearted, do not break the bruised reed, nor quench the smoldering wick. Instead, by your spirit and through your word, work in us new life to trust in Christ and follow him. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit forever, God, world without end. Amen. Our scripture passage this morning comes from the book of Exodus as we resume our exposition through this book. We are in Exodus chapter 13, beginning in verse 17, and we're going to read on into chapter 14 to verse 14. Exodus chapter 13, verse 17, if you are willing and able, please stand for the reading of God's word. Listen to God's word. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea, and the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him. For Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from, the, from here. And they moved on from Succoth and encamped at Etham, at the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pihahiroth, between Migdol and the sea, in front of Baal Zephon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, they, have, they are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, what is this, what is this we have done that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army and overtook them and camped at the sea by Pihahiroth in front of Baal Zephon. 
when Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not. Stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you. And you have only to be silent. May God bless the reading of his word. Please be seated. Uh, One of my uh, favorite hymns that we sing in this church is God Moves in a Mysterious Way. It is a meditation on the providence of God. We'll have a chance to sing it later uh, after, the, after the sermon. But let me read a few verses of it to you. It says, God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unsearchable minds of never-failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense and trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. Now I read this as we turn our attention to Exodus 13 and 14. Because I think in many ways, it uh, rightly summarizes these verses. Uh, this, this hymn really gets to the heart of this passage. The hymn addresses the plans and purposes of God, which often seem circuitous, confusing to us at times. And yet it rests in the truth that God is utterly reliable and sure. This is a vital truth that we need, no matter what may be happening in our lives, we need to remember that God is unchangeably good, that God is simple, loving, merciful, and just. Uh, You may be sitting here this morning and you might be thinking about health issues that you currently have right now, or maybe you know somebody with a health condition, and you're wondering, God, what, what are you doing with this person's life? What are you doing with my life? Or there's conflict in your life. Maybe your marriage is difficult. And you think, Lord, why have you put me in this situation? Or maybe you're single and you're wondering, Lord, I want to be married. I'm trying to do it the right way. I want something good. You've given me a desire to be married and yet it remains unfulfilled. God, what are you doing? Or perhaps you have doors that keep shutting in on you and you wonder, God, why don't I have that job? God, why can't I afford a home here in the Bay Area? Maybe you're looking more broadly at the world and you just, it just seems upside down to you. Injustices are rampant. 
racism continues to go on. Why can't, why can't it be? Why, why are Christian virtues trampled in our society while unrighteousness is heralded? And think, God, do you know what I'm going through? God, what are you doing? Do you know what you're doing? Well, our passage this morning calls the church to stand firm, even in what seems like a frowning providence from God. It's been some time since we've been in Exodus, so let me remind you of the story thus far. It says in verse 17 that Pharaoh let the people go, which really is an understatement. They were expelled out of Egypt. Uh, Until now, Egypt has done everything that they could to retain the slave labor of the subjugated Hebrew people. And as a result, God had judged Egypt with terrible judgments, 10 devastating plagues upon the land and the people of Egypt. And now we're on the other side of the judgments. And Pharaoh in chapter 12 expels the Israelites. He says, go, get up, get out of here. And so the Egyptians were urgent to send the people out of the land. 600,000 men get up and leave besides women and children, and also a mixed multitude go up. And after some intervening material that we saw earlier in Exodus 12 about the Feast of Unleavened Bread and about the Passover and the consecration of the firstborn, the narrative again picks up in verse 17 of chapter 13 of Israel's flight from Egypt. And as a newly formed people, after 400 years of slavery... The Israelites had much to learn, and God would be their schoolmaster. And one of the first lessons that God teaches them right here is the importance of standing firm. And this is a lesson for us. This is a lesson for us because 1 Corinthians 10 says specifically that the events of Exodus were meant to be lessons for us. It's not just a story about redemption. It is a story meant with, to provide ethical instruction. And we are to stand firm even in the mysterious outworkings of God's will. And there are three exhortations this morning when life doesn't make sense. First, stand firm for God provides. Stand firm because God provides. As the Israelites begin their journey out of Egypt, you notice that they receive pilgrim provisions. And there are two of them in these early verses. First, they had the promise of God. Now in verse 19, it seems like a strange account. It appears that Moses took time to exhume the bones of Joseph. Uh, Perhaps Joseph had been mummified in the Egyptian way, or perhaps his bones were kind of placed in an ossuary, uh, a box that contains his bones. But why does Moses dig up Joseph? I mean, what's the big deal? I mean, I actually have a son that says, when I die, that he would like to keep my skeleton. Now, I'm not sure exactly what that says about me and his relationship, but I'm assuming that it's because he loves me so much, he wants my bones. But that's not what's going on here. This isn't just sentimental value. This was a picture of God's promise because back in Genesis 50, in the final paragraph of that book, Joseph says, I'm about to die, but God will visit you. 
400 years later, little did they know, and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones from here. So while Israel was getting ready to leave Egypt and plundering the Egyptians, what was Moses doing? He was digging. He was exhuming the body of Joseph because those bones were a testimony to the promise and the purpose of God. They were physical reminders that God keeps his promises. Joseph said in faith, brothers, I know, I am confident that you're going to get out of Egypt and go to the land that God has promised. And if ever people doubted God's promises, they could say, look at the box. Look at that box there. God's promises are sure. Even 400 years later. The bones are a powerful reminder of God's never-failing fidelity to his never-forgotten covenant. Not only were the Israelites equipped with the promises of God, they were given the presence of God. We see this in verses 21 and 22. There's this pillar, a cloud by day and fire by night. Now, this isn't two pillars. It's really one pillar, okay? Um, it's a cloud, and during the day, it looks like a cloud, and at night, it looks like, a, looks like, a, looks like fire, Chapter 14, uh, verses 20 and 24, 24 affirm that it's only one pillar. Okay? By day, it, in the sunlight, it looks like a pillar of cloud. In, in the evening, there's a fire that shines in it that leads them where they should go. Now, this wasn't just a sign of Yahweh's presence. This is the manifestation of Yahweh himself. Clouds and fire are symbols throughout the Old Testament and into the New of the very presence of God. You know, we can only, we just think back to Genesis 15 when, Abraham, when God cuts this uh, covenant with Abram. And what do we see? We see a, a smoking pot, don't we? A flaming torch. Uh, God appears to Moses in what? In a burning bush. Israelites arrive at Mount Sinai. What do we have? We have a cloud that covers the top of Mount Sinai. When in Acts, when Jesus ascends into the clouds, how was the presence of God's Holy Spirit manifested? In tongues of fire. The Israelites, you see, all day, every day, knew by this pillar that God was present with them. They weren't redeemed so that they could live out their lives in whatever way they wanted. God never leaves them. His guidance is comprehensive and covers every moment of every day in their journey. And while, they might, and while we might think, man, wouldn't it be great if you know, up here was the bones of Joseph? <laughs> you know, or we had a pillar and it would tell us, we have something even better now. Instead of bones, he gives us what? He gives us a book, doesn't he? That contains all the promises of God that we might live life of godliness and of assurance in him. And confidence. All the promises of God are here in, the, in his completed scriptures. In moments of that doubt, we don't need to look to a box. We just need to look to the book. And what's more, when one becomes a Christian, God gives you the Holy Spirit. He actually gives you himself. God takes up residence in your heart through the Holy Spirit. That's what happens when you become a Christian. That God is near to you. He's not near to you only in this 
incarnation of Christ at this moment in time, 2,000 years ago, he is near to you right now, dwelling within you. That is the gift of the Holy Spirit, comforting you, strengthening you, guiding you, giving you peace when there is no earthly reason for you to even have peace because he gives you the Holy Spirit. Isn't that wonderful? Every rocky valley, every wound we, we feel, every loss, the Spirit enlightens our minds in the understanding of his holy word. Child of God, you are one with Christ, inhabited by the Spirit of Christ, and directed by the word of Christ. So stand firm. God has provided. Second reminder from our passage, stand firm when the path seems strange. Stand firm when the path seems strange. So think about yourself as an Israelite at this moment. You have the box of bones. You have the pillar. Things look great. You're out of Egypt. But then the pillar starts moving in this strange direction. You see in chapter 13, verse 17, that when Pharaoh let them go, God did not lead them by the way of the Philistines, although that was near. You see, the, the big highway to get to the land of promise, to get to Canaan, was this highway called the Via Maris, the way of the sea. So if you were going out of Egypt to Canaan, what you needed to do, do was basically head northeast and along the Mediterranean coast, and you'd get there. That's the easiest way to get there, closest way to get there. There's already a road there, but God doesn't tell them to go that way. Instead, verse 18 says that they are to start heading southeast, southeast, by the way of the wilderness and the Red Sea. So instead of going this way, they went this another way, and it seems circuitous. It seems totally counterintuitive. You can imagine the Israelites are wondering, what's going on? Uh, is... Do we have the right cloud here? Because this, is it broken or something? What's happening? Because this is so in, inefficient. I mean, look, if we wanted to go to Lake Tahoe, how would we do it? Easy. 101 North, 80 East, all the way. Done. You're there. But this would be like saying, hey, I'm going to go to Lake Tahoe and I'm going to go south all the way down to Bakersfield and then head, head east all, all the way to Death Valley and then head up north to, to Nevada and head back west into Lake Tahoe. That would be ridiculous. Totally inefficient. Just what is going on? God, what are you doing? What's going on is the mercy of God. You see that in verse 17? God says, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. You see in verse 18, it says that the Israelites were equipped for battle, but that doesn't mean that they were these hardened soldiers. It means they're organized. The NASB, of the, uh, NASB translation translates it, the people of Israel went up in martial array. You know, maybe these Israelites had taken up some weapons when they plundered the Egyptians, but they were more equipped to swing the sickle than to swing the sword. Right? And though the most direct route was to take the Via Maris, God knew that they would encounter Egyptian forts and detachments. They, they would meet the coastal people, the Philistines. They weren't ready for battle and scared. They would find their way back to Egypt. Now, the point is, that God is so kind and so merciful in his providence that he takes into account their weaknesses as he plans the way that they should go. He knows the fragility of their faith. He does know. He knows they need to take the long way home. 
And we understand this a little bit on a human level, don't we? Sometimes that's the best way. Uh, Some of you know that my family and I, we recently uh, took a trip to Disneyland. And many of you also know my feelings towards Disneyland. But I was thankful that a couple of good friends took us around the park. Now, I had some ideas of how the day should go. Certainly, we would make our way up north to Star Wars land. And then, because that's where it would be most packed, right? We would start there, and then we would certainly make our way south into Frontierland, and then make our way east into Tomorrowland. And that still seems like the logical and most efficient way to see Disneyland. But my suggestions uh, were not really uh, heard. And quickly, I found that my family and I were zigzagging across Disneyland. And yet sometimes our friends would say, okay, uh, now we're at a good stopping point. It's time for us to take a bathroom break. And I thought to myself, that's right. I, I do need to take a bathroom break right now. And then in the afternoon, our guide said, well, it's the afternoon. Let's go into this cafe here. There's uh, air conditioning here and free water. And Steve, you need to pick me up. So I already bought a cup of coffee for you, an iced coffee for you. And I thought, I really did need that cup of coffee right now. And I realized they not only knew what they were doing, guiding us around, but they were taking into account my weaknesses. (laughs) How much more with God? How much more with God? This is vitally important for us to contemplate. God doesn't send them the shortest way. Instead, Israel is going to go into the wilderness. And you know what's going to happen in the wilderness? You kind of know the story, some of you. They're going to say, Lord, you left us and you led us here into the wilderness. Why for us to die? You led us here to die. Now that's what's coming. In light of what's coming, aren't these verses in chapter 13 an amazing statement? That the reason God took them on the way that they considered to be so hard was to make it easier for them. Whatever path God has on you on right now, have you ever paused to think, that however hard it is that God in his wondrous providence has ordained not to put us through another trial which would be unbearable to us. Oh, how tempted we are to question his wisdom and kindness and goodness. His ways may seem counterintuitive, yet God has reasons for his strange paths that he sometimes leads us in. But it is always the best path for his own glory and for our good. I think about all the divine nevers in your life that you might have been blissfully ignorant about. You know, I thank God that the Lord didn't allow me to date this one girl in high school. I thank God that my parents never had cable, uh, so I would never have access to pornographic material. Uh, I thank God that I'd never had video games. Now, because I'm not addicted to playing them all the time. And sometimes people who grow up in the church and in a Christian family, they feel that life is boring, and perhaps that's some of you. You think, oh, I wish I had that testimony that this person had, this dramatic testimony where they were deep in sin and dabbled in all these things, and I could say, oh, God saved me from all this mess. And if that's you, we of all people ought to give thanks to the Lord for all the messes we never even knew of all the things he never put in our lives, all the paths he did not allow us to take, simply because he gave us parents 
who took us to church or didn't put bad friends in our way or made us unattractive to the opposite sex or whatever it is. And God's providence is perfect. It's the best way because it's God's way. So stand firm and trust him. Third and our final point for this morning. Stand firm when the path seems hopeless. Stand firm when the path seems hopeless. Look at chapter 14, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell the people of Israel to turn back. (laughs) Stop right there. I mean, they had just left Egypt and something's not right here. God, or in our estimation, God says, turn back. The text mentions they encamp in front of Pihahiroth between Migdol in the sea in front of Baal Zephon, and we don't really know where those places are. If you have a map in the back of your Bibles, it probably gives you some good guesses where they might be, but the topography has changed so much they're not quite sure. Yet if we, even if we can't locate those sites precisely, we know something doesn't seem right because they reverse course. And not only that, God says encamp between the desert and the sea. You don't have to be a great military strategist to know that this is a horrible idea, seemingly. They're, te- they're, hem- they're hemming themselves in. They're going to be sitting ducks. They're completely vulnerable where they are. Out- they're out on Egypt's frontier, surrounded by desert, backs to the sea, virtually defenseless. Why on earth would God put them in this position? Well, verse 3 tells us exactly what God is up to. He wants Pharaoh to think two things. He wants Pharaoh to think that Israel is wandering aimlessly. And he wants Pharaoh to think Israel is trapped. And when he hardens Pharaoh's heart and when Pharaoh pursues them, God will make his name known. You see that in verse 4. Pharaoh and all his hosts and the the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. Yahweh is the God who makes himself known. And sure enough, Pharaoh has a change of heart. We see that in verses 4 through 8, 4 and 8, that the Lord hardens the heart of Pharaoh. Egypt has scouts looking out for these Israelites. Uh, They see that they've kind of turned and kind of trapped themselves in. And slowly Pharaoh and his servants are thinking, what have we done? What are we doing? We just gave up 600,000 able-bodied men to be our slaves. Who's going to build these monuments? How are we going to complete these massive building projects? Who's going to clean up the mess after 10 plagues? And so Pharaoh has this seller's remorse, doesn't he? He sends his army to pursue them. He's like a slaveholder. He wants to go north and hunt for his runaway slaves. But he doesn't deploy a small regiment. It says he sends out a large regiment of chosen chariots, special top-of-the-line, cutting-edge military equipment, along with all the other chariots of Egypt, with officers over all of them. Uh, Pharaoh likely changes his mind because in the Egyptian religion, ancient gods and goddesses were arbitrary, they were capricious, they were quick to change their minds about things, and... Usually they were of one locale in one location. They could leave that location. They weren't omnipresent gods. So perhaps, uh, perhaps Pharaoh is thinking, you know, the Lord or this Yahweh has changed his mind about his people. 
Perhaps Yahweh's angry with Israel. Perhaps Yahweh's abandoned Moses. From the outside looking in, it sure looks that way. But whatever the reason, Pharaoh misreads God and misreads Moses, but he isn't the only one. Israel misreads God and Moses. In Camp by the Sea, you can imagine that moment when they hear in the distance hoofbeats. The of hoofbeats, right? And then they, and then they hear these, the turning of the chariot wheels. And they look up and they don't see a pillar of cloud. What they see is this cloud of dust in the distance. And they knew the greatest military force was barreling straight toward them. Now, if you know the story, you kind of know what's coming up next. You know, we've seen enough of the movies. We know, oh, yeah, this is the moment. This is the time. This is a trap. You know, it's, this is, they think they got, they got Israel on the ropes. This is, the knockout blow is about to come. But that's not where Israel is. They didn't know how it was going to end. All they saw were impossible odds and deadly circumstances. So what do they do? They cry out to the Lord. And yet it's also this cry that's mixed with unbelief, isn't it? Imperfect. Because immediately they start rebelling. And they see the dust of the chariots and their confidence evaporates. And in the face of danger, they lose their faith. And they do what most people do when they're scared and unhappy. They blame their leaders. They ask biting, stinging questions to Moses. Is it because there's no graves in Egypt that you let us out here to die? Which is certainly ironic because Egypt is grave central, isn't it? Egypt was a land of graves. Egypt celebrated graves in the building of pyramids. They're saying, hey Moses, if you just brought us out here to die, we could have done that at home. What have you done? Isn't this what we told you? And even though there's no record of them actually saying this, don't, didn't we tell you to leave us alone and leave us in Egypt? Sometimes we look down our noses at these Israelites. Oh, they're so fickle. Didn't they? Like, how is it possible that they just saw 10 plagues and now they're already disbelieving God? Well, if this surprises us, it's because we underestimate the disorienting effects of these Israelites. I mean, imagine for yourself, put yourself back into your university days and when you're back in school and you're in the middle of class and the class is droning on and all of a sudden your professor gets up and says, everyone pay attention. Uh, we have a generous donor that says he will pay for all of your tuition, pay off all your loans, and any future endeavors of study that you have, he'll cover. All of a sudden, everyone's awake in the classroom. And then the prof says, if you want this offer, all you have to do, take up all your belongings, follow me into the parking lot. And so everyone's quickly packing their bags, and you go out with them, and then your prof says, just wait right here. I'm going to go into the admin building, and they go. And then all of a sudden, you're like, they've been gone for a long time. And you're kind of sitting there in the parking lot, and you're wondering, as the minutes kind of drag on, and the sun maybe feels like it's starting to set, and you realize it's not a safe place to be in this parking lot, you start wondering if it's all a practical joke, and you start doubting, and you're wondering if it's not real. That's what these Israelites were up against. They were slaves for 400 years. Can we blame them, blame them for a little Stockholm syndrome? And if we're honest with ourselves, we aren't much different than these Israelites. 
when there are encompassing crises in our lives, we doubt. We want to rebel with unbelief. We complain. Sometimes Christians try to commend Christianity to those who aren't Christians by promising that if you trust in Jesus, life's going to be great for you. It's going to be just peachy. And that's not exactly true. The gospel does mean good news. It is good news in the sense that while we are sinners to who we are and that the wrath of God is against us and we we deserve an eternal damnation, the good news is that God sent his son, Jesus Christ, very God of very God, to die upon the cross to be our substitute. Basically, it's saying Jesus takes our sins and gives us his righteousness and all we have to and all our response is is just trust him it is to say i'm not going to live my way i'm going to live god's way and i'm going to trust in the work of christ who died and resurrected that's great news and that's happy news and there is great benefits for the age to come even here and now I do believe and I personally experience and some of you have personally experienced the true joy and peace and life that comes with the promise of God and his presence. But when you become a Christian, you get a whole new set of problems, don't you? You used to call all the shots in your life. And now you all of a sudden have to listen to what God says? Or you used to pick and choose your relationships and now you're stuck with the local church. Or you used to be untroubled by your sin, and now your sin is your greatest burden and worst enemy. And we're tempted to look back at our own personal Egypt and recast history and say, certainly things were a lot better back then, before. And those temptations are compounded when we feel hemmed in on all sides. When everything seems helpless, we want to doubt God's promises, his goodness, his love for us. We don't even want to pick up the Bible. Because it's, well, in our estimation, it's irrelevant. And in these moments, we must stand firm. Look at what Moses says to his people. Fear not, verse 13, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. Do you see the imperatives in this verse? Fear not, stand, see, and be silent. I say it that way because in Hebrew, these are strong forms of the imperative. There is a tone of rebuke here. Stop fearing. And you need to stop talking. This is like a parent speaking to their child saying, you need a timeout right now. You need to take a timeout and watch God work. Stand firm. And that perhaps is the hardest thing to do when the path seems hopeless. To stand firm. I I don't know about you, when I'm stuck in traffic, I look at the lane next to me and I'm like, that lane's moving and I just want to go into it. Even if I know it's not going to speed up my time at all. 
Because I'd rather go somewhere than to stand still. I'd rather, I'd rather search up Google for the answer than to stand still. I'd rather go into WebMD and find my answer, which is probably worse than stand still. It's hard to be silent and just wait for God. We know that the command to be silent doesn't mean don't do anything. Certainly Ephesians 6, when it talks about the armor of God, says, put on, put on the whole armor of God, belt of truth, shield of faith, helmet of salvation. But what is the command in Ephesians 6 with the armor of God? Stand firm. Stand. Spurgeon said, I dare say you think it is a very easy thing to stand still, but it is one of the postures which a Christian soldier learns, not without years of teaching. I find that marching and quick marching are much easier to God's warriors than standing still. It is perhaps the first thing we learn in the drill of human armies, but it is one of the most difficult to learn under the captain of our salvation. To stand at ease in the midst of tribulation shows a veteran spirit long experience, and much grace. Church, when we are caught between the desert and the sea, let us look to the promises of God. Let us stand firm in the ab- because, not because there is an absence of danger, but because of a God in whom we can trust. Nothing touches you except by God's determination except by God's will, accordance to his will, and in, and in order to achieve his purposes. He is too great, and he loves us too much to allow it to be otherwise. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we give thanks to you for you lead us all the way. And it is true that we are a people that are ready to doubt and complain, to run around with our, sometimes it seems like our heads cut off at, at, with all our anxieties. And so we ask that once again, your spirit would give us a peace that transcends understanding, that the promises of your word would settle our souls. I do pray for all those brothers and sisters who, are, who feel hemmed in on every side, who are looking for a way of escape. And, oh, Lord, we pray that as a church we would come, come near, draw near, and be a source of encouragement and, and reminder, and be a source of prayer for one another. And we pray that you would increase their faith that they may trust that you are fighting on their behalf. We are weak, Lord. We are unable. And so we ask for you to display your strength in our weakness. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let us stand in response. God moves. God moves.